conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back. I'm your host, Deanna Chapman, and Jason Tate has returned. It's been a while. I can't tell you what the last episode we did together was, but it's been a while. (laughs) It has been a while. It's good to be back, though. Yes, and today we are talking all about Jaws, the 1975 movie. I did not realize it was that old, but apparently it is, (laughs) so here we are. (laughs) When was the first time you saw it? Was it for this podcast, or had you seen it in the past? I think the first time I watched it in full was definitely when I first approached you about doing this episode, which I have no idea when that was. It might have been yeah. last year. It might have been this year. Not 100% sure. But... It was probably 1975. <laughs> <laughs> but I had never watched it start to finish. I had seen clips here and there, either from like, I took this class in high school. It was like the history of motion pictures or something along those yeah. lines. So. They showed us clips of a lot of different movies, but didn't always necessarily show us the movie in full. So it was one of those things. It was like, I recognize bits and pieces of Jaws, but I had never seen it start to finish. And, you know, the movie's a little before my time, a little bit. (laughs) I was before my time, 1975. I was born in 1983. So yeah, it existed my, my entire life. But I think that that's one of the cool things about it is how well it's held up, uh, especially for a movie to come out in this in the 70s. Um, and even to this day, when I watch it, I feel like the movie as a whole works. And I think that's pretty cool because not, I mean, there's, there's quite a few movies from the 70s that I actually really enjoy, obviously, as a Star Wars fan. But uh, yeah. <laughs> there's not a, a whole lot that I would say you could almost release like right now without making many changes to it. And I still think it would be a pretty massive hit. And this feels like one of them. Absolutely. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they were using more practical effects at the time because they didn't have extensive CGI available to them or anything higher tech. So, you know, the shark was completely mechanical and wallet obviously does not look like the most realistic shark in the world. It doesn't need to for this movie to be all that effective. Yeah, what I like, uh, what works so well is obviously the fact that they don't show the shark for, and I, I think it's like a good 60 minutes or so, it feels like, uh, before you ever even see the shark on screen. Um, and because they had a lot of flaws and problems with the mechanical shark in the water. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> Shocker. Uh, be- because of that, it allows the movie to become more about the people. It allows the entire like hunt of the shark to be such a suspenseful thing to the build up to that. And I think that that works really well. Uh, and, and you made the movie right now like i think even if you let spielberg do the movie right now he'd be really uh, he'd probably be enticed to do some version of like a cg cgi shark early on like you'd see it too soon it would be too for too too much in the forefront of the movie uh and i think that would because of that it would actually suffer yeah absolutely let's dive into the story because this takes place on Amity Island, which is a fictional summer resort town, and they shot most of this movie at Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. So, you know, that definitely has that summer resort town vibe and everything. And obviously, in the 70s, things weren't nearly as crowded as they are now. So, you know, (laughs) it really 
felt like that town was the perfect fit for this kind of story because it isn't a town that's you know full of people year round it was like a lot of people come during the summer and that's when the busy season is so what happens when something terrible sort of comes to this place for that same stretch of time and they just handle it so well and i have not read the novel so i'm not familiar with what changed for the movie or what didn't have you read the novel before a long time ago okay uh, i remember some of it but not a whole lot they did change quite a bit like the one of the uh things about this movie is that uh, I found it, I think it was Spielberg that basically said that he enjoyed the novel, but he wanted the last third of the novel to just be the, the movie instead. Like basically when they start the hunt for the shark and everything and that they wrote a lot of the dialogue and screenplay like as they were shooting <laughs> and they improved a bunch of stuff as it was going along. So it wasn't the screenplay itself, according to lore, was not actually like finished and ready by the time they started shooting the uh, the movie itself. Yeah, one of the nice things too is that while there are a lot of people in the story, the story doesn't really focus on too many of them because most of them are tourists. So you really have, you know, the police chief, Martin Brody, his wife, a marine biologist, and, you know, later on you have more of the mayor coming in. So you really only have a handful of people that this surrounds. <laughs> and the last, I don't know, third of the movie at, at the very least is pretty much just Brody, Quint, and Hooper on the boat. Like that, yeah. that's the, and then the shark, obviously. <laughs> yes. And but, the but, shark but hunter, but, of course. You know? Yeah. And that's, and that's what you get. So, uh, but I think that that works well because you get the entire buildup as you go back to the beginning of Yon Martha's Vineyard, uh, well, whatever they call it, and the actual movie Amity, Amity Islands, is that what yes. they call it? Yeah. Um, so, you're, so you're there, um, but it starts so bright. It starts so, I mean, the first scene obviously is dark. It's at night when the first shark comes up, but you're in summer. You're in this like little slice of uh, New England that feels like it could be basically anywhere. You have kids running around. You have uh, parades starting. You have the mayor and everybody like talking about the big season about to start. Um, and then as the movie progresses, you obviously see all of that kind of unwind. But I, I like how you get a feeling of like this could just be anywhere on the coast this doesn't necessarily need to be like it could only happen to these people it's like no if you enjoy going to the the ocean this could possibly happen to you and it leaves that like feeling of ominousness behind every single interaction uh going forward it's definitely one of those movies that would make people think twice about just, you know, going to the beach and playing on the ocean and things like that. And as someone who, despite being from California, does not do that, <laughs> you know, it was one of those things where because I recently watched it, you know, within the last year or so, it didn't have quite that same effect on me because I already didn't do those things. But I imagine, you know, in 1975, kids and parents alike watching this are like, oh yeah, this is actually a real possibility. And it's a thing that has happened, albeit not necessarily to this extent, so to speak, <laughs> but sharks are out there and sometimes they nibble on people. Sometimes they just eat them completely and it's a thing. And to take this sort of realistic thing that could happen and to 
just put so much terror into people without it really feeling like a horror movie, I think is something that this story was just able to do so well. And I think you can attribute a lot of that to the cast, too, because, you know, it felt like this was a perfectly cast, a perfectly casted movie for the story they were trying to tell and when they were trying to tell it. Yeah, the actors are great in it. I, I mean, Rory Scheider, who plays uh, Brody, uh, I can't I can't think of anybody else in that role. I Maybe it's just because I've seen the movie so many times <laughs> um, at this point, but it's like I try in my head to be like, well, who could do that? And I can't come up with anybody. Like, I can't think of anybody that could have done that role, especially in 1975, that I think would have been as successful. And I don't know if anyone other than Spielberg could have directed this either at the same time. You know, Steven Spielberg is such a big name when it comes to thinking of these big blockbuster movies that really set the tone for future decades to come. Yeah, I was doing research on the movie last night, sitting around trying to like come up with different things to talk about on the podcast. And when I came across the fact that he was 27 when he directed this, I wanted to like just crawl into a hole. <laughs> I guess oh, he, wow. was 10, he was basically 10 years younger than I am right now when he uh, directed Jaws, which is incredible. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm a big Spielberg fan, and I think that some of his other movies have maybe potentially like surpass this like schindler's list is definitely up there for me as one of uh my favorites of his but i think that as like a whole he's almost been like chasing what he was able to do with this movie ever since um and that's pretty crazy given that it was technically his i think his second actual movie that he did he had a tv movie before um but for something like that to to knock it out of the park that in that way, basically recalibrate how movies are even released or even what the expectations are for like something like a summer blockbuster uh, is pretty incredible. And I can't think of any other director that could have done something like that and had the, I guess the gumption to go through with everything that he did to get the movie done. Um, And also not know what he didn't know to be able to do something like this because i mean at, he now says like it was a mistake to try to shoot as much stuff as he did on the ocean it was a mistake to uh try to build these sharks that could go and they kept sinking and like all these different things that happened with it but if you don't have all of those like pieces kind of falling apart in this relatively young new director trying to put them all together i'm not sure you get the same movie um and by the end like what what we get out of it is arguably like the quintessential summer blockbuster and in many cases a masterpiece of filmmaking it's fantastic and it's not to say that he didn't have as much success later on because you know he did jaws raiders of the lost ark et the goonies jurassic park he's done so so many movies that people think of as classics in a sense you know they're not classics as in from like the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, but, you know, they're a little bit more modern day classics, I guess you can say, because people will still watch these movies over and over and over again, and they just stand the test of time so well, some better than others, obviously, which goes for any movie in the 70s and 80s, I would think by now, but I just like how he was able to take this story out of a novel, pick out what he thought would translate best to the screen, and then turn it into something that would just stick with so many people. And you mentioned some of the issues with the shark, and I think that actually made the story a lot better by not having 
the shark in it quite as much in the beginning. Instead, you get these musical cues that just let you know something bad is going to happen. And it just blends so well together that you're like, yes, you know what? We don't need to see the shark. We are smart. We know what happened. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that that's, that's really, really clever. Obviously, John Williams uh, is a master. And the fact that he was able to build the score the way he did um, using the main, obviously, the main shark theme that works so well to give the audience early on a sense of like foreboding, like, oh, shit, like something's about to happen. Um and you're so used to that throughout the movie that by the end of the movie, when the shark actually shows up and you don't get the musical cue, you get surprised even more. And I think that that's why that specific moment works even better. Um, and it's one of those things that obviously a couple of directors had played with before, but I think that this specific way of doing it, uh, you can trace all the way through to something like The Dark Knight. And you can hear the sound that Christopher Nolan uses before the Joker is about to show up. Um, and other directors have played on this idea of building the quote, like villain theme in so it handles the expectations of the audience in a different way. And I, I think that this is one of the first times I really notice how well and specifically that's used. One of the things I noticed too was the opening is a little misleading for what you might expect the rest of the movie to look like because you have this beach party and after the fact, one of the girls goes skinny dipping in the ocean and that's the first body we see the next day. And it's almost like she was being punished for doing something she wasn't supposed to, but that doesn't keep up throughout the movie. So they kind of mislead you at first, like, oh, maybe the shark's only attacking people who are doing things after hours that they're not supposed to, you know, being in the ocean when they're not supposed to be in the ocean, but then the shark appears during the day and you're like oh okay so they're not taking that direction with it either so there's a little misdirection at the beginning there i feel like they could have easily gone either way with that but i'm glad that they didn't just be like oh we're going to punish teenagers for being teenagers kind of thing <laughs> yeah it, like it plays into that idea of the like early B-movie trope of like, if you do something scandalous, you get murdered by some axe murderer or whatever. It, it like plays with that, but then doesn't doesn't go down that path, thankfully. Yeah. Uh, what is, so what are some of like your favorite scenes in this movie specifically? Like, uh, I, obviously I love the opening scene that is just so iconic and I can only imagine what it would have been like to be in the theater in like 1975 and see something like that on the screen for the first time. I could, I bet that that was uh, harrowing and lots of screams probably happened. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely one of the great moments in the movie. But I think some of my favorite scenes come more when the three men are out on the boat mm -hmm. and you have this moment where they're sort of all sharing stories. And it's like for a few minutes, they forget that there's a shark out there. Mm -hmm. And you just see the camaraderie between these three guys, even though they're very different personality wise, you know, the police chief wants this done and over with. They just want to be able to move on. And then you have the shark hunter and the marine biologist who really don't get along. But in that <laughs> moment, it's just these three guys on the ocean. They have no one else to confide in or you know, drink with. So they're stuck with each other. And it's just sort of this really nice moment that despite all of their differences, they're all here for 
the same reason. Yeah, the night on the boat is definitely one of my favorites. Like that is one of my all-time favorite scenes in cinema. I love when they're all getting drunk and singing the song. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when Qu- when Quint gives the story about the USS Indianapolis going down and all mm-hmm. of his friends being in the ocean is one of the great speeches, like great monologues just in cinema in my opinion. Like I love every every single thing about that. I like all the little stories behind the movie as well of like apparently uh the, who played uh, Dreyfus, who played Hooper, and Robert Shaw, who played Quint, apparently did not like each other very well uh, it, it, while shooting, and they did not get along, oh. and had, had like multiple like run-ins, uh, and apparently Shaw was drinking a whole lot just during the movie in general, and so he maybe or maybe not was pretty drunk during that scene itself. So there's like all those little like things that you find out later that you can then see worked into the performances, and when you see that like Hooper and Quint don't really get along but it's kind of like on the edge of friendship i don't know i think that that's that's very cool yeah i love that scene that one is the night on the boat is on my top five favorite like cinematic scenes probably ever yeah it's just such a great moment and then it's interrupted by the shark and you're like oh man i forgot about the shark for a minute (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's very good the other ones i love is like i love that fourth of july weekend in general where Mm -hmm. they finally decide like okay we're gonna open the beaches up everybody's a little bit scared not quite sure what's gonna go on i I like how that whole entire scene plays out because it works well to it's slow at first it builds the entire way you're suspenseful because you know like he's right there is a shark out there but like i'm not quite sure what's going to happen like is it actually going to come in and attack people Um, and that ends up leading to one of my favorite shots in the film where they do that dolly and zoom out shot on uh brody himself when he realizes like oh no like it's about to go down and uh, that that scene to me just feels like summer like when i start thinking about like a summer movie and what i want to watch jaws comes to mind because of that and i feel like that specific like feeling of what that entire scene and shot is is kind of what so many different shows and things like uh, like i'll use stranger things as an example stranger things coming out now is is always trying to retroactively capture and like bring you back to something like that and i think that's what spielberg just does so well and why so many people just associate their childhoods and their summers and things like that with so many of his movies because he does such a great job at that Absolutely. It's just really great to see what they do with the characters throughout the entire movie, because at the beginning, Brody is sort of like, oh, you know, it's summertime. It's usually pretty quiet around here, despite, you know, the busy season and everything like that. Everyone's just out there to have a good time. You get your drunks that you have to deal with, and that kind of seems like it's it. And then the shark attack happens, and all of a sudden, he's just way in over his head. And I like how you can see that right from the start, too, with Brody. It's just played so well. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because basically the three, by the end, the three main characters play almost archetypes more than they play a specific like character themselves like you have Brody you have the cop you have Quint who's more of like a Captain Ahab sort of character and then you have Hooper who's like the scientist and they work so well to you you just immediately know who they are what they're driven by what they are like just in like moments after meeting them like you don't need much time on the screen to be like who is Quint who is this fisherman like you you just know like yeah, instinctively what this kind of person is like, what they're driven by, what they want. And 
what's probably ultimately going to be their downfall. And I, I find that fascinating how quickly you can do that in a movie uh, like this. Yeah, I was surprised with how much I ended up liking this. It's not that I thought I wasn't going to like it at all, but I wasn't quite sure on how well it would hold up. And story-wise, it holds up. Visually, I think we can sort of dive into that a little because it's obvious the shark isn't real. (laughs) And I think that's fine, though, because, again, it's 1975, and I didn't expect the visuals to be fantastic. Obviously, you have things where they're remastering movies and TV shows and HD and everything like that now, and some even in 4K, you know, I think what the shining and stand by me recently ended up being released in 4k or will be released in 4k and so you have these older movies from the 70s and 80s that are sort of getting this new treatment to make them look a little better and i was totally fine with how this looked because it really fits the mood of the movie you know you don't need it to be all bright and super sunny and super colorful during the summer because this bad thing is going to happen anyway you need it to look a little more bleak than usual yeah it's definitely true i mean i don't i if you go back in and say uh, you wanted to cg the shark now i just i feel like you it, that would feel almost more out of place like you'd see a pristine looking version of the shark with all these other camera shots and i just don't i just don't think that that works as well i think that for me like I've seen the movie so many times that I end up like trying to focus on different things that why I think the movie like the movie gets set apart. Why like why does this movie work when so many others from like the seventies that you you see now and you're like oh it actually ends up being a little bit more cheesy than I expected. Like why why does this one hold up for me so well? And I think that beyond just the fact that you know Spielberg is a fantastic director and like little changes that he made such as like it starts with a lot of uh, steady cam shots and uh, big sweeping overviews of crowds and things like that early on in the movie and then by the time we're on the boat with the hunt it's like mostly handheld cameras and you're swaying back and forth and you can feel like you're on the boat it's little things like that that he does that really brings you in uh it's the music it's the fact that john williams is obviously a master of what he's doing the entire time but i think that it's such a applicable story just to engulf yourself in like you're sitting here you're the kind of person that i don't know you you live in your everyday life and then a thing happens and you have the man that then gets called into duty a call to action to try to you know solve or fix this thing you have the politicians that are then fighting against you and they are just trying to make money and they're just saying like no you can't shut down the beach because of blah blah blah, blah. and i think so many of those different things throughout the story end up becoming universally understood even now years later Mm -hmm. Um, and it's why i think that a movie like this continues to hold up to new generations of fans like and if you're just looking to be scared um it's not the scariest movie in the world now like i can understand why in 1975 it was pitched that way but i do think that the scares the jump scares a couple of those things hold up to a degree that even if you had grown up watching movies in the 2000s or the late 90s to, man, I guess we're in the, what, what do we call these? What do we call the decade between 2010 and 2020? Does that have a name? I have no idea. 
I don't need it. I know I'm on a rant here. So you, like, even if you grew up with movies in that uh, time frame I, that were scary and like filled with blood and horror and blah, 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 all of that, I still think a movie like this works. And it's the same thing why like a movie like The Shining, in my opinion, also still works. Because like if you're able to capture that and you're a talented enough filmmaker, uh, that sort of stuff does kind of become timeless. Like that, that is not a thing that it, that goes away just with the passage of time. One of the reasons I think it still stands up to is because they didn't try to get too overly complicated with it. You know, I don't want to say it's a simple movie because I feel like that's almost a disservice to it, but just the way it was shot, they weren't trying to do these crazy shots that would have necessarily, you know, gone out of style or something like that. I remember when I was watching Carrie the original and there's sort of this split screen moment i was like oh that's that's a thing they just did <laughs> and you know <laughs> it kind of takes you out of it for a minute but in a sense it works and i don't know if some things like that would necessarily still work today it kind of depends on how it's being used and things like that but because like you said a lot of this is steady cam at the beginning and you really just get this sense that they were like okay we know what we want to do, and this is how we're going to do it. We're not going to make it more complicated than it needs to be because we're already having issues with the shark. So, <laughs> you know, I feel like just keeping it sort of grounded, I guess you can say, is a really great way to have movies like this stand the test of time. And the same can be said for Star Wars, which came out two years later. You know, that movie still looks good, even if the space scenes don't look that great. You know, it's like, okay, it was 1977. What? do you expect you know don't tell george lucas this. he's gonna go back in and start putting more cg <laughs> stuff in here if he hears this 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 podcast knock it off stop, stop messing around with my movies <laughs> i didn't say anything <laughs> and i also i like that you can see early i mean even here with early spielberg you see a lot of things that he obviously keeps coming back to in a lot of his later movies like a lot of his movies have those tracking shots of you can see what you stay on one character as they work through a crowd or work through stuff you get a lot of shots through um windows and through different setting up different uh, levels of field of how you view the characters depending on like what's going on and he does a lot of that stuff here that he continues to do in, in his later work and it's it's fun to watch that kind of get built and kind of begin because i don't know it's 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 one of those things where you can kind of just see it's not that it's rough around the edges, but you can see somebody starting to learn their craft and play with something that they end up mastering in a very short time afterwards. And it's it's cool to watch. Like uh, that, To me, I've always enjoyed kind of being like, oh, I see what he's doing here. He's going to, in four movies, do a version of that that's going to knock, knock you on your ass. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I was also reading that some of the approach that he took for this movie was a little Hitchcockian. And I can definitely see that, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was great at what he did. And while you might not necessarily recognize that in early films, he worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. And that's why he has so many movies that so many people really remember. And Spielberg clearly was able to master that same idea Absolutely. Okay, I'm trying to think of other scenes that specifically jump out to me. The one line that obviously gets quoted more than just about anybody, any other, is that you're going to need a bigger boat line. Yeah. I, love, I, I love the idea when movies and things like that have that like one kind of catchphrase thing that end up becoming uh, part of the like cultural zeitgeist. And I guess overall, that 
is the other interesting thing to me about the movie is what it was able to do to movies in general um, and how it basically reset and recalibrated how movies were even being released in the States at the time. I think that's that's crazy to me. Like the fact that one movie could be so influential that it shifts from most movies that were quote considered like the big hits used to be released in the winter and they used to be kind of staggered. You would do big premieres across the country and you'd go to like the big theaters. And then Jaws is kind of the first time where first it gets moved to summer for a big release and they just wide release it immediately to try to get as many people as possible into the theater to talk about it. And it becomes like a moment. And I guess some could argue that now we have all these big quote event tentpole movies and that's maybe not great uh just the fact that a movie can reshift the landscape and how that happens i find fascinating because i i don't see how something like that could happen today like dude if marvel all of a sudden decided like we're moving our movies to a limited release and we're gonna do like four big theaters and not like would we move back to that i just don't think that would happen i think that we're at the spot now where it's like this is just kind of what it is and it's because of this movie and that's that's pretty cool to me it really is crazy how much this one movie changed the landscape and it still resonates today too because you know we're recording this it's june 12th and in two days you know men in black international is coming out and it's just movie after movie after movie coming this summer and you know it makes me glad that i have amc a list because i'll be able to go see a lot of them and the summer is just so jammed packed jam-packed with releases that really it starts in like April and May now. So before kids are even out of school, <laughs> you know, they're just like, bring on the movies. Exactly. The movie came out June 20th, which is only like, what, a week from today? Like, yeah, coming up on the anniversary. That's pretty cool. Obviously, timed that perfectly on my part. <laughs> Unintentionally. <laughs> well <done. Yeah. laughs> Let's talk about the budget and the box office for this, though, because I feel like that sort of goes hand in hand with the whole blockbuster idea, because initially... This movie had a budget of $3.5 million, which is like chump change for Hollywood today. <laughs> and they went quite a bit over budget. I'm looking at box office mojo here and the production budget they have listed is $7 million. Wikipedia has $9 million, but who knows? It's probably somewhere in between there. But the movie made over $470 million worldwide. That is a huge, huge profit margin there. <laughs> Yeah, the budget stuff's always been funny to me because uh, not only did they give him hardly any budget for it to begin with, and then he went massively over, but uh, they were originally supposed to shoot the movie in something like 55 days, and it ended up taking 159 to shoot. Yeah. And Spielberg tells stories about like while he was editing and like working on the movie, like people coming up to him at parties and like uh, basically saying like, you're never going to work in the industry again. Like you're done. Like the, like you, nobody goes over by this much money. Nobody takes this long to shoot a movie like this and is going to get hired again. Like studios are going to basically blacklist you, uh, which obviously did not end up 
end up happening. And then for it to go on and be such a massive success afterwards is is pretty awesome. Uh, the other story that I was reading about yesterday is apparently the scene where the head comes out of the boat that's shot midway through and scares uh, Dreyfus's character. That scene itself was shot later on and the studio wouldn't give Spielberg any more money and he paid $3,000 of his own money to go shoot that scene because he was like, I want one more like scare in the movie. And so he went and filmed that with some friends on at like a pool and put a bunch of like garbage in the the water to make it all look all crappy like that and he wanted that so badly so even with the the budget going all the way over apparently Spielberg had to toss him of his own money and at the end to get the last scene that he really wanted to be in the movie which I find very funny given the fact that it then made a yeah which is with inflation that's got to be a couple billion dollars (laughs) it made a lot of money and because it was at 1975 the rating for it was PG. So anyone could go see this pretty much. Which is also funny. Yeah, P- a PG movie that did have like on the tagline, like some scenes may be too intense for children. It's like, you think it, like you think that, that that's possible? Uh, it's also one of the first movies that apparently like it kind of built its buzz around stuff like that, around like people being really scared. And so it like became this kind of event thing that people needed to see where it's like I, the, the first time I remember that happening in my childhood was Jurassic Park. Like I remember like kids being like, that movie was so scary. Like, oh my God, like I couldn't even watch some of the scenes and me being in, I would have been elementary school at the time, like fourth grade or something like that. But, well, I've got to see this. And it, my parents being like, eh, I don't know if you get to see Jurassic Park yet. <laughs> um, but the fact that like we didn't have the PG-13 rating yet for something like this uh, is very funny in hindsight, given what uh, where film and cinema has gone. Yeah, and... Just the fact that things have changed so much since this movie, most of it can be attributed to this movie too. So it just has such a lasting legacy. It's just crazy to me that, you know, this mechanical shark impacted people so much. But at the same time, you know, it kind of makes a lot of sense for 1975. Yeah, it's true. It, it does. Like, and yeah. Well, since you have seen this movie, probably a few more times than I have. (laughs) I will defer to you here. Is there anything else you want to talk about with this one? I know we haven't gone too terribly long so far, but I feel like there's probably something we're missing and there's probably people yelling at us as they're listening to this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think that... You can go like a variety of different ways with the movie, right? You can break down the movie scene by scene. You can keep going back to different things and being like, what are like what are the best scenes? What scenes work better than others? Why did like Spielberg make different decisions based on like what the book is? Like in the book, uh, for example, like he, the shark ba- dies by just stabbing him with a whole bunch of the uh, harpoons and basically it goes out like Moby Dick. Uh, okay. Whereas in the in whereas in the movie, he get, you shoot the uh, sharks whatever that is, the uh, air tank that mm-hmm. explodes and you get a much bigger explosion at the end of it, which I think is is good. Um, in the book, Hooper's character dies um, after having an affair with Brody's wife and that just gets completely cut from the the movie for, for a good, good reason, reason. And, yeah <laughs> so i think that having like these decisions that spielberg made like along the way and like the uh screenwriters which they used a variety of ones to kind of piece it all together and then there's the main one at the end uh made good decisions on how to combine elements of the book the best elements of the book with what they were trying to do in the movie itself um this movie's combination of 
horror and fright and thriller meets some levity and comedy, I think is a combination that we continue to see to this day movies trying to do, especially in big blockbusters, sometimes to uh, annoying effect and sometimes it works well. But I, I think that that's pretty cool. Um, then there's other things that you can talk about in the movie that just from a like stylistic and specific cinematography standpoint, one is that Spielberg asked the art department, uh, some, some of the reading I was doing was like, he asked the art department to avoid any red in any of the scenery or wardrobes because he specifically wanted the blood to be the only red element that you see to cause a bigger shock once it, once it happens. Uh, and so it's stuff like that, that I think is to me fascinating about a movie like this. And for a movie to be an all time great that I start wanting to like dive into those little things and be like, well, why'd they make this decision or why does this work? Or how, like, how do you come up with this? These are, those are the things that set a movie apart for me. Like I can watch movies that I enjoy and be like, yeah, it was pretty good. Like that was a, a fun movie that I don't care about the little things like that. I don't care about looking into, uh, how and why he used the shark where he needed to and what happened to, lead to this specific uh plot point happening because they shot it this way and it had to and it's you, you find out like a lot of it were, was happy accidents things that they just happened to catch on camera and then kind of wrote the script around to make work and that to me is like i i don't know how to even put into words of how serendipitous it is that a movie then ends up becoming what something like jaws was yeah i think a lot of that has to do with just what the story is trying to tell you and who is directing it that makes people fans especially want to just dive in and you know not necessarily pick the movies apart but just learn all of these little trivia facts about it and you know it's something that I've been getting into more as I've started watching movies more and more because before I watched a ton of tv and I was really horrible at watching movies and that's not to say I don't still watch a ton of TV too. I just watch a lot of things in general. But, you know, I recently picked up a book that was about Alfred Hitchcock and the making of Psycho. I haven't read it yet, but it's just one of those movies where it's so iconic. You just kind of want to dive in and find out as much as you can about it. So that kind of leads me to this question. Do you think Jaws paved the way for movies like Star Wars to just take off and become as big as they did? I think that generation of filmmakers uh, should probably get credit almost as a collective. You know, you look okay. at Coppola, um, George Lucas, Spielberg, and as they're all kind of doing different things uh, right around that same time, I think that that together, like that works really well um, because I guess 75 and 77 are close enough together that you, you got to give that entire generation of things that start happening credit for that but i do think like jaws is the is, a, is an easy way to like start with putting your finger on the map and being like it kind of began here and then it built into what you see with star wars and then going forward into the you know film history when we're talking about things like big giant tentpole movies yeah and i have not seen any of the jaws sequels but i imagine don't <laughs> okay that was kind Dude. of the gist i got so you know star wars clearly did a better job of sort of this world building because yeah. you know even though the prequel trilogy exists you know you can pick out some good moments from those even if they are mostly not liked by most of the fans but the way they've brought it back 
recently, you know, starting with The Force Awakens and the fact that they've kept the books going and now they have comics, they have the TV shows, you know, Star Wars just totally kind of took what started with Jaws and it just launched into, you know, this global insanity almost. Yeah, Star Wars, I mean... There were serials before Star Wars, um, and there were like, right. attempts at franchising things before Star Wars. But Star Wars brought us to such a different level that everything's been basically trying to replicate that. And it is interesting that Jaws itself uh, kind of avoided that. Uh, they obviously had sequels, and relatively speaking, they did well money-wise. Nothing even close to the first one, mm-hmm. but they're just not as good. Of, they're just not as good of movies. Um, I've seen them all, and <laughs> the la- especially the last two are laughably bad, like just horrifically bad. But it never became a kind of thing like a Star Wars where you're like, you need to keep checking in on these characters. You need to yeah. like, what it, what is Richard Dreyfuss's character doing now? You know, like that is not a like a thing to, that needs to go back to. Uh, and thankfully, they, they haven't attempted that. Like instead, they just keep trying to, I guess, one up whatever this kind of movie is. Uh, and you get things like The Meg, <laughs> <laughs> which is just a ridiculous version of a shark attack movie that's uh, barely under like Sharknado. But you also get things like uh, The Shallows, which was, do you, have you seen that one? I have not. I have that on my list, I think, to get to. Story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> which is like a Blake Lively movie with, then there's a shark involved um but it was like surprisingly good like it's a pretty good movie it's not as good as jaws but like it works so i think that it was able to span out these like different versions of i don't know what to like call them like creature attack movies or like something happens to a character and like what's gonna i don't like there's there's a genre of movie kind of built around what jaws did that's not necessarily a franchise of like a direct sequel every single time and we need you know jaws 95 <laughs> all of a sudden all of a sudden we need like prequels to it or anything like that um that said uh it also was extremely merchandised at the time like right. it was the kind of thing where that poster was everywhere the book was everywhere they had video not video games well they did have video games about it because i have an nes video <laughs> game for jaws but they had uh like actual like uh handheld games like board games that aren't board games i don't know what to call them uh they had games they had uh shark tooth necklaces that you could buy like it became a cultural phenomenon in like almost a different way and that to me is uh i don't know that that's almost like something like star wars where it becomes mm-hmm. such a touch point of culture uh without necessarily being the same kind of like franchise that star wars or like today we see the marvel movies being Basically, it paved the way for the fascination with sharks in general, I think. That too, yeah. I mean, they tell stories about how actually like a lot of people went out and were murdering sharks and killing sharks uh, right after the movie came out. Like fishermen would just like start killing sharks because of well, that not movie. Good, uh, but... which is, yeah, super bad. Like like not not great at all. Um a, some marine biologists that think that the movie actually led to a misunderstanding of sharks and like that it painted uh sharks in a a way that to this day people have a negative connotation about sharks that they they shouldn't. And I did read a quote and I could be completely wrong, but that the author himself, uh was it Peter Benchley, I'm gonna butcher his name, Benchley. Benchley um, yeah. said said that he if he knew what he knew about sharks now, he wouldn't have written the book. Um, that he actually like didn't do enough research about sharks at the time to give them 
their proper due. And I find, I find that interesting. Um, mm-hmm. And because, I mean, you take something like Jurassic Park and obviously if we start thinking about scary dinosaurs, who cares? Like it doesn't really necessarily do anything to our every day-to-day world because we don't have dinosaurs down the street. Right. Um, <laughs> but something like a shark movie that hits the public consciousness so heavily that we start thinking about it so much, like can have an actual real world impact on how we as a society and culture like start treating that animal. And I don't know, that, that, that is very strange to think about. Yeah. I feel like without Jaws, Shark Week probably wouldn't exist. You know, <laughs> maybe true. maybe it would, but I feel like Jaws really just launched this sort of obsession for good and bad at the time with sharks. And that is a huge testament to what the movie was able to accomplish, even, you know, like we said, it's not great that people went out and started killing sharks because they weren't <laughs> actually knowledgeable about them. But when people fear something, that is one of the reactions they can have to it, especially something as real as a shark. Yeah, I think that's why the shark itself is such a perfect uh, vehicle for this kind of movie, though. Like if you think about uh, the ocean and it's something that you can't see it's something so vast that it's the only comparable thing we have is like outer space but then you have all of these creatures that live under there like right under basically our feet not that far from where a lot of people actually live that we don't know a whole lot about and some of them are very very big and can be obviously based on this movie very terrifying uh and how they look and you you can use that to uh you can play into that with the way people just see their own world and that's that's not a thing that you can do in the same way uh with other animals or different characters like i don't know that it's why i think jaws works so much better than some of the other movies like i mean i've seen piranha and i've seen versions of that and it, it just to me it never captures or has the same mystique that something about a giant killer white shark has and that that fascination and of sharks and shark week and trying to like figure out these smart very intelligent animals and what they're doing uh it's pretty cool i don't know that i should learn more about sharks (laughs) yeah it's one of those things where looking back on it now you're like i can see why people reacted this way but at the same time you're intrigued by just the idea of what sharks are able to do because they are such smart creatures definitely uh, we talked about enough about the music. The only other thing is have we have we mentioned that John Williams is awesome and this his his entire score is incredible, but the yeah. specific shark theme is brilliant. I just want to make sure we give enough of a shout out to that before <laughs> uh, before we before we finish up. Yeah, the score for this is so so good. It's one of those iconic ones that you know people will be buying the Jaws soundtrack on final for quite some time i'm sure it's been repressed by now you know <laughs> i would definitely think so and i can't think of anything else that has more iconic two notes in history that especially film history i can't i can't come up with many that the moment anybody starts playing out on the piano or even just starts humming it anywhere i mean it's become such a part of our lives that you can't go to a pool and not have somebody start doing the little doo Sounds like anywhere, <laughs> anywhere at any summer, at any given time across the entire country, 
anytime the sun comes out and somebody's at a pool, somebody's making that joke. And I, I find that things like that is w- what interests me about movies like this, like the way that they become so engulfed and so entrenched into our society that they, what are we, in 1975, it's 2019 now, and we're still doing things like that. And what do we have in our culture right now that is gonna is gonna be the same? Like you look at something like Avengers Endgame, which is the biggest movie in basically ever <laughs> that came out. Is there anything from that we're gonna be quoting twenty years from now, thirty years from now, forty years from now? Is there gonna be something that kids are still making little jokes about each summer at the pool? Maybe, but it doesn't scream it in the same way that something like Jaws did to me. And yeah. I'm always interested in looking at what sort of parts of society and what sort of parts of culture we're mining now in 2019 that we're going to still have around like something like Jaws is. And when I see it, I think it's amazing. And it's kind of sad that I guess we don't see it as much as I kind of would hope. Yeah. One thing I do want to note is that, you know, we mentioned briefly Steven Spielberg's streak of movies that he directed but john williams might have the better run out of anyone (laughs) in the 70s and 80s because he did jaws he did star wars close encounters of the third kind which you know people might not look upon as favorably as i think they do jaws and then he did superman they should It's just crazy how much he did. And John Williams did E.T. with Steven Spielberg as well. So the two of them worked together numerous times over the years. And it all began with a previous Steven Spielberg movie, The Sugarland Express. So that was the first time they had worked together. And then Jaws was the second time those two had worked together. And it just kept going and going and going. And obviously, John Williams did other work on other major, major movies. So, you know, he has a great, you know career that people will remember for years and years to come. And it's always interesting to think back on like, would either of them had the same career without the other, right? Like, cause I, I always think that cinema and music, obviously as somebody that runs a music website, I'm very big about music. And I think that they play together very well. And if John Williams isn't the one that does Jaws and it's somebody else, is the movie as good? I'd argue probably no. And then if John Williams never actually teams up with Spielberg and does something like that, does he get the same recognition for his genius and continue to be able to do the rest of the movies that he's able to do. It's like, we obviously can't play the scenario out to find out, but maybe, maybe not. Like I, I'm always interested in like the little things that end up working out in that way. And then you see the long history that John Williams and Steven Spielberg have had and all the classic themes that they've been able to do together. And that's why John Williams is one of like the great American composers at this point. Without a doubt. Well, is there anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap it up here? I don't think so. That's it. That's all. That's all I've got on my list. Well, Jason, it was really fun talking about this with you. You know, I deferred to you on a lot of it because you have watched it more than I have. And I'm sure I will get around to rewatching it again at some point when I don't have 8 million Stephen King things to read and watch. But <laughs> That's fair. It's, it's one of those movies that I've watched. I mean, as a kid, back when we didn't have streaming, we didn't have access to any of that sort of stuff. It was my 
uh, high school friend's favorite movie, like for years, like his actual favorite movie that we had on VHS. He had on VHS. I had on VHS. So anytime we got together, we would just put it on. Like that was just a thing that we had on in the background. We would quote the uh, the song that they sing when they're dr- drinking all the time around campfires and Boy Scouts. Like that was just like a part of growing up to me. So I think that's why I also have such an affinity to the movie. Like I have, I remember growing up with Jaws when we had, eight movies that we could basically watch at any given time and that happened to be one of them like we'd go down uh to my friend's beach cabin we were watching jaws late night slumber party on some random summer we're watching jaws like so i think that that it's become such a part of me and summer and late nights and just thinking about like what defines like a great summer movie to me and it's jaws and that's why i wanted to talk about it so i'm glad that we were able to do this Yes, and hopefully we won't wait nearly as long to get you back on for another episode. I know we have some other older movies we want to discuss. I'll see you in another year. (laughs) (laughs) One a year. That's your quota. (laughs) That's my quota. (laughs) To our listeners, you can find us at Geekdom Pod on Twitter, at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram. And thank you all for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks.